Attention, attention all personnel, it's MASHCAST! Hello and welcome to MASHCAST, the show that analyzes and celebrates, episode by episode, the greatest TV series of all time, MASH, which aired on CBS from 1972 to 1983, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, General Robert Iron Guts Kelly, and joining us this week in the VIP tent is Corporal Captain Molly G. Hi, Molly. Welcome to the show. Hi, Rob. What's so funny about being a corporal captain? <laughs> no, no, I don't like it at all. No, I, I, uh, you requested to not be made a lieutenant, uh, which is what I normally do for anyone nice enough to come on the show. I immediately make them an officer. You wanted to be a corporal captain. May I ask why? Do you not want the responsibility of being commissioned? I mean, what's going on? I mean, pretty much more or less. No, I, I just think it's, <laughs> it's, you know, a fun title. I love the welcome to Korea, you know, throwback. It's a great episode. And, yeah, I have never personally been in the U.S. military and no aspirations to pretend to any rank. A corporal captain suits me just fine. <laughs> okay, well, fair enough. Well, I mean, if you come back, I mean, by following the rules of corporal captaindom, your next thing would be a major because corporal captain, by by Hawkeye making it up, is in fact a captain, which means you're one rank above lieutenant actually because that's how radar got into the officers club so you're already an officer actually even though the whole thing's made up i think i would be a corporal major next time no Uh, maybe i know we'll work that out uh (laughs) we have until next season to worry about that so well anyway thank you so much for for being here uh we're here to talk about episode 20 from season six mail call three which is uh really i think a particularly great episode from the season but before we get into the plot synopsis and stuff Molly, it's your first time on the show. Like, how did you become a fan of MASH in the first place? So unlike, uh, I think, a lot of your guests, I did not get into the show as a kid. Um, my parents were not particularly big TV watchers. My best friend since childhood did grow up with MASH, but we never watched it uh, when I was over at her house, hanging out or anything. I was kind of aware that it was some old show about the army that my friend's parents really liked, um, and that was about... <laughs> you know, the extent of my knowledge. So I I kind of like miss missed out on the the whole experience of, you know, growing up with it like most of your guests have, I think. So we can fast forward now to the year 2019. Uh so I am rooming with my brothers. We're renting a house together. My older brother, a bit of backstory, is on a big classic TV kick at the time. So he's watching a lot of shows from that era, all in the family, Mary Tyler Moore. Um, and MASH was one of those on his list. So I decided, oh, hey, this is might, you know, might be a good opportunity to check it out. I knew that my best friend was a big fan. So we sat down and we watched, I think the, I want to say the first two episodes, definitely the pilot. And I have to admit, and uh, no one, you know, crucify me for saying this, but I was not a fan initially. Um, starting from episode one, uh, the, I think the treatment of the women, especially in early episodes kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. Sure. And yeah. yeah, obviously, you know, it's a product of its era and like the early seasons were following in the wake of the movie and the precedent the movie had set. And so, you know, there were I'm I'm not trying to judge it by, you know, any standards that that weren't of the time, I guess. I understand why it was the way it was. But at the same time, it was like this is not particularly motivating me. I have other things I could be doing with my time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no offense. Uh, I, no, I totally. Still... I wouldn't show. If someone came to me and said, 
introduced me to MASH. I've never seen it. I wouldn't show them the pilot. That wouldn't be the first thing I'd show them. Yes, that that's my attitude um, as well. So I'm I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, but I would still, my brother was still watching it, n- not like every single episode, but he, you know, he had like some some top ones that he was watching and I would catch random scenes on the TV when I happened to be walking through, you know, so it, it would be funny, but nothing that was with me. Uh, I don't know if I had ever like sat through a whole episode just seeing random scenes here and there. And then the first episode I, I remember like watching in full. I don't, I don't know if this is going to be surprising or not. Uh, but it was movie tonight. And okay. that was the first time, uh, that I finished an episode of MASH and I immediately thought, I want to watch that again. <laughs> uh, which I did. Um, so by this time, we are approximately in March of 2020 when something, mm. something not, <laughs> not so chill happened in March of 2020, as we all know. Um, and suddenly I'm spending a lot more time in the house. We're kind of continuing to watch MASH, um, and I decide that I wanted to actually, like, go back and start watching on my own now and catch up on things that I missed, so I'm finally hooked. I went back and first started from season four uh, and watched all the way through to the end and then have gone further back since then, not necessarily in sequential order um, the way that I watched it that first time, but so I'm, I still bounce around um in early season episodes from here to there. And to this day, there are still episodes of MASH that I have not seen. So we'll Ooh. we'll see when I get around to them. Uh, you got that to look forward to. There's still I new did. MASH out there for you. That's great. I thought you might be jealous of that. So <laughs> I very much am. It, it is going to be so amazing. I think this is going to be borne out as over time. And I've talked to enough new fans just in the last couple of years that like, it's, it's going to be grimly ironic that I think MASH is going to get a new life from a younger generation. Thanks to a, health crisis. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a lot of people say, you know, I never saw it. And then I had a lot of free time starting March, 2020. So we started watching the show. <laughs> Look, well, yeah, yeah, there you go. So, and it's, it's not even just that we were all stuck in the house. It's that we're all kind of dealing with this huge, you know, radical world shift um, that's happening like in, in the society at the time. And that's kind of, similar to like what is happening with the characters on the show being like stuck in this crazy situation that, you know, they're, they're not really sure how they got into or when or how they're getting out. So there's, there's a little bit of that um relatability too. I I think it was just, uh it just was happening at the right time or the wrong time, depending on how you look at it uh for a <laughs> lot of people. <laughs> what do you remember what your, your brother's view of MASH was? Cause he was, was he taking it? He was taking it for the first time as well. Right. Uh, he was, yes. I don't, I don't know. We, we didn't, that, that is a great question. No, I'm going to have to ask him. I, I don't necessarily recall like any conversations at the time we were having. I know that's like a boring answer. You can cut this no, out. Uh. No, 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 no. I was just wondering if you leapfrogged him, you know, like he introduced it to you. Oh, yeah. And then you oh, were I like, did. oh, I got to watch all these. And he's like, um, all right, I got to go watch something else now. Oh, I 100% we got to the point where I was like then ahead of him on the episodes <laughs> and being like, oh, have you caught up? Have you watched, uh, uh, I think it was season 10. And I'm like, have you watched where there's a will, there's a war yet? He's like, no, I'm like, we're going to watch that one together because that's a great one um <laughs> that's great i love that <laughs> i love that you just kind of were like okay give me the keys i'm gonna go do this that's fantastic yeah. Yeah, that's really cool <laughs> oh man so okay well now that you've seen the bulk of the show you haven't seen every single at all 251 but you've seen the bulk of it do you have like a a general era that you kind of like a little more than others you know the the early years probably not the early years 
but the BJ Frank years or the Winchester years, which of course we're now in. Of course, my uh, my sweet spot is kind of seasons five through nine. I think I I do enjoy season four as kind of like a build up to season five, and then I think that's like when Margaret really starts to evolve. Um, and the you know how how her character is written improves a lot in season five. I think. Um, and then I'm definitely a, a BJ girl, a hundred percent Charles girl, hundred <laughs> uh, percent. And I I also just personally love when the show becomes more character driven. And kind of starts diving deeper into the inner lives and the emotional continuity, which there wasn't as much of a focus on in the early seasons. Um, so, yeah. All right. Fantastic. I, I love I just love hearing people's origin stories. I just find them just endlessly fascinating. It's just especially now with the show is available in so many different formats. It's just sort of sitting there waiting for people mm-hmm. to discover it. You know, <laughs> it's just it's just there. And you're like, oh, geez, boy, I really like this. Oh, wow. There's 251 of them. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which is fantastic. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how, again, time will, will bear it out. But, like, I mean, there's lots of great TV. You know, we're in the sort of golden age of television again, or people are saying. But, like, you know, a lot of these great shows have, like, 14 episodes, you know, and then they're done. And it's like, mm-hmm. will that will that hold up in years? Will people want to watch the same 14 over and over and over versus something that has 11, 11 mm-hmm. seasons worth of content? Well, and it's also kind of related to the shift in the, you know, larger TV landscape right. of things that are, you know, more serialized storytelling, which is like what we're seeing in the the golden age. And now I think we might even be in the post golden age, um, which is a, a topic for a whole nother podcast, maybe. <laughs> um, but it, as when you compare it to a show like MASH, where it's like it's 251, 53, whatever episodes and it's, you know, there's no like really overarching plot that you don't have to watch them all in order kind of thing. So it's, it's just like a different experience, um, of television. I think that might be easier retroactively to get into something like MASH where it's like you don't necessarily have to sit down and say like, Oh, you know, there's, there's this show Bible and there's this, um, kind of strict, sort of strict, um, I don't really know what the word is that I'm looking for. Continuity, you got to really progression. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, it's maybe maybe one explanation for why it's kind of retroactively still being enjoyed as much as it is. Absolutely, and it's still in you know syndication. Syndication rewards that. I mean, it's on MeTV an hour every night, and you can just every once in a while, if I'm in the middle of something, I'll just put MeTV on just to see which one they're running. And if it's a really great one, I'm like, I'll sit and watch this again. And it's just, it's just wonderfully random, you know, like, oh, oh, yeah. cool. Season four. Excellent. All right. I'll sit there and watch this one. So, well, that's, that is fantastic. And so I'm very excited to, to have you on the show to talk about this. So as I mentioned, the episode is Mail Call Three. It uh, aired on February 6th, 1978. It is written by, and for the final time, Everett Greenbaum and Jim Fritzell, the dynamite team of Greenbaum and Fritzell. This is their last script for MASH. And it's directed by Charles Dubin. So I got to say, everybody, uh, I went really overboard on the plot synopsis on this one. (laughs) So this one's a little longer than normal. I apologize. I think it's because I love all the plot threads in this one. And so I couldn't bear to edit one of them out or anything like that. So, okay, let's get started. Uh, It's mail called again, and everyone is dying to see if they got anything. Uh, None more than Klinger, who hasn't heard from his wife Laverne in months. And he's clearly worried about the state of his marriage. Hawkeye gets a letter from a woman, except that it's addressed to a different Benjamin Pierce. And we learn that this isn't the first time it's happened. Apparently, this other Benjamin Pierce is quite the Lothario, judging by all the passionate letters he receives. 
BJ gets a letter from Peg where she mentions a neighbor made a pass at her, which she laughed off. Hawkeye tries to assure BJ that Peg can handle it, but BJ is angered all over again that he's away from his family. Radar gets a letter from his mother mentioning that she is dating again. Radar is confused and stunned at this news, even after Colonel Bob tries to tell him that it'll be good for her, since, as he notes, the poor woman's been alone a long time. At that night's movie, Klinger's bad mood spills over, and when everyone thinks he's pulling another fast one, he tears off his dress in anger and tells everyone that Laverne stole his allotment checks and now has run off with another guy. He storms out of the tent, leaving everyone stunned, except for Winchester, who's only interested in seeing the rest of the movie. Potter comforts Klinger in his office, willing to place a call to Laverne back in Ohio, but Klinger can't bring himself to do it. He wants a discharge, something Potter, of course, just can't do. Later that night, Klinger decides to go AWOL and asks Father Mulcahy for a loan. Mulcahy gives him the money, but demands Klinger not go AWOL, threatening to tell Potter if he does. Klinger says he won't go anywhere and takes Mulcahy's advice to sleep on it. Radar turns to Hawkeye for advice about his mother and her new boyfriend, and Hawkeye shares a story from his past about how his father dated a woman after Hawkeye's mother passed away. Hawkeye's father wanted his son to like this woman, but he would he refused. Hawkeye observes that his father didn't marry her, and he's alone to this day, and loneliness is everything it's cracked up to be. Radar comes down a bit, agreeing to give his mother some space, offering up the idea that maybe his mother could be introduced to Hawkeye's father. BJ, in the middle of the night, is so scared that his wife no longer needs him, asks Radar, uh, Radar to place, place a call to Peg. Radar tries to say no, but he finally relents. At the same time, Father Mulcahy tells Potter what has happened with Klinger, seeing that Klinger has in fact left camp. They head to Raider's office to try and track Klinger down, only to find BJ tying up the phone lines. BJ gets some reassuring words from Peg, and then Potter and Radar try and track down Klinger, asking any MPs who find him not to arrest him, just bring him back to the 477. The next morning, the other Captain Pierce arrives to pick up his mail, carrying with him mail meant for Hawkeye. The other Pierce isn't happy to see that Hawkeye has opened all of his letters and insists that he's not interested at all in these women, but they won't leave him alone. Hawkeye and BJ demand to know how he does it, i.e. get the women to go crazy for him. He says it's because he's very funny, a fact and not an evidence from his humorless, awkward demeanor. He says that he makes women laugh, leaving Hawkeye and BJ confused and in disbelief. Klinger returns to the 477, admitting that just before he was about to stow away on a plane headed out for Korea, he realized he was doing the wrong thing and came home. Potter was mad, but now he's just happy to have Klinger back. This is a jam-packed episode. Uh, I expect nothing less from Everett Greenbaum and Jim Fritzell, who wrote, of course, some of the best mashes ever. And as I mentioned, this is their uh, final script. So before we get to it, scene by scene, overall, what do you think of Mail Call 3? So it's maybe not their most original premise, uh, but <laughs> I, you know, how many, how many male episodes uh, have we seen at this point? But I, I love that it's carrier, character uh, oriented. Something that I actually love is that it's not a Hawkeye centric episode and other people kind of get the chance to shine. Not that Hawkeye isn't doing anything in the episode, um, but he's certainly not the center of attention. But yes, yeah, so it's a, a lot of great supporting performances, even characters like Charles and Mulcahy, who don't necessarily have a letter through line happening are still given some good material. I can understand if this episode might not be for everyone because it's extremely light on the plot and heavy on the characterization um, but I personally love a good slice of life and I love hanging out with my friends in the TV. Absolutely. I, I think everybody, uh, here gets something to do. As you just said, not everybody gets a letter where they have a through line, but everyone gets some bit of business. And I always like those episodes. And yeah, of course it's, <laughs> it's called mail call three. I mean, they're not even trying 
to pretend it's some sort of novel approach. It's just, okay, this is the third time we've done mail call. Um, they would do other episodes that would focus on letters home, uh, but uh, they would never call another episode mail call. This is it. They would not do mail call four, mail call five or anything like that. This is maybe they realize now nah, we should probably come up with some more original titles, but I yeah. just love that everybody gets something to do. And I've been mentioning, you know, all throughout the season, I think Jamie Farr in particular is really bringing it uh, this year. And the moment will, I mentioned in the synopsis, but we'll get to it in detail in a moment uh, in the, um, in the mess tent where he gets mad at everyone because they don't believe him. I think is one of Klinger's best moments, one of Jamie Farr's best moments. And so I just think he's doing a great, great work here. And I love, you know, the bit of course, is that, you know, in the opening scene, when, when the, the mail arrives and everybody's swarming radar and bothering and Klinger is like, everybody back off, you know, leave him alone. And then of course, He's doing that just so he can jump on radar and go through the mail without radar checking on it first. And of course, radar's not letting him do it. It's because this is a problem of Klinger's own making is that everyone thinks this is a scam because of course the guy pulls nothing but scams all the time. And so when he finally has something that's really happening, nobody believes him. And so it's heartbreaking, but it's also like, well, that's you're the boy who cried wolf, Klinger. That's the problem. And I, I just think that's a great kind of bit of tension to the show of that you feel bad for the guy, but you also understand why everyone's dismissing him. Yeah. And as, as you mentioned, like you've been saying throughout season six, we're really starting to kind of see a more uh, serious shift towards Klinger as a character when he's not, you know, just coming in to be the gag of the guy in the dress anymore. And not that that was ever like the extent of what his character was because Jamie Farr, you know, from day one kind of took the, took the character and made more of it than that. Um, you know, the, they, like they said, he came on as a day player and ended up staying for 11 seasons. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I think this is definitely, um, just, just another sort of domino in, in that line. So I'm excited to get into it. I do have to ask real quick before we dive into the scene by scene, when you watch it, and I apologize if you've said this before on a podcast and I missed it, but do you watch with the laugh track? Uh, sometimes, some, I, most of the time, no, I most at this point when I watch mash for just entertainment sake, it, it's on, um, I bought it on Apple a bunch of years ago. They had some ridiculous sale where they were selling the entire 11 season set for like 50 bucks. And I was like, I can't, even though it's on Hulu, I can't turn that down. And I think the default setting for those is no laugh track. And I think, really? I, I, yeah, I think you can go in and add it or something, but I've never bothered. So generally, no, I'm not watching it with the laugh track. And is this the like the remastered version that's on Hulu or is it like the original, you know, four by three aspect ratio that's on the DVDs? It's it has been. No. Yeah, they've done. They have redone it a little where they've they've blown it up the the, the different format. So, yeah, it, that part is not ideal, but at least like the interview is in black and white. I mean, a Hulu eventually yeah. fixed that. But uh, but yeah, the, the, but yeah, they've they've messed with it a little too. It's it's not the version that I watched, you know, originally all those years sure. ago. This is the first time I'm hearing that there's a remastered version that doesn't have the laugh track because I think on Hulu you can't turn it off. <laughs> I don't. I can't remember whether you can or not. I don't ever watch it on Hulu other than just to like grab a screen grab or something. So that's that's so interesting because I also watch it without. I think it really makes a difference. Uh, in terms of how people perceive the show a little bit. I'm guessing that you didn't, I, I mean, I don't, I don't exactly know how old you are, but I have a vague idea. I'm guessing you didn't grow up with shows with laugh tracks. Cause that's kind of a relic of a bygone era. 
No, right? I guess I guess they were like friends, maybe or Seinfeld. Well, but that's at least might've, those people are really been, there, at least. Right. You know? the, those might have been like the last ones um, that I remember, like being on TV when I was a kid that had laugh tracks. But I mean, but I mean, Mash, it's it, it's so discordant when you because you're like, where where are these people coming from? Exactly. Who's left? Where like, <laughs> exactly these people are long dead. Like, what's happening here? It's very very strange. <laughs> Uh yeah, I have to I'll have to think about it. I don't need, sometimes I I I've watched these so many times that I think there could be a left track and I may not even notice because I just I don't know. I just I just take it in and I don't really even think about well, it. Well, I'm, I'm sure when you were a kid and watching it in syndication, obviously you could not turn the laugh track. No, off right? There. Yeah, the laugh track was on. Yeah, that, well, that's so, I'm old enough to where that's what most of TV was. It had laugh tracks, even though there was no way to have an audience there, and you just accepted it. You know, you're just like, okay, that's just. That's just what TV is, I guess. There's just this random group of people laughing that aren't in the aren't aren't really there, but uh, that's the way TV works. So, um, but yeah, no, it's um, I I generally the laugh track doesn't bother me because I grew up with it, but I also understand why people are like, what? Like, you know, it's better just to yeah. I I do think like like you say, it bothers people of of my generation uh, a little bit more because it it just feels a, a little bit more foreign to us. I think. Yeah, totally, totally. So after uh, after Klinger grabs his letter from Laverne and takes off, we go to the swamp, and Hawkeye and BJ and Father Mulcahy are hanging out. Some mail arrives, and he get BJ gets a bunch of letters, and Hawkeye gets a magazine, which is he's very excited. The bonus issue of Nudes Week, which <laughs> like I mean, you know, it's been an ongoing thing that that you know Hawkeye gets porn. Uh, or whatever passes for porn in 1952 or whatever. But this is the first time where like they're talking about that one of his magazines is like a porn parody of another magazine. Nudes week has about like the other ones he's, you know, he's gotten like, you know, naked frolics. Okay. Well, that's just what it is. But I love the idea that like nudes week, <laughs> they thought there was a, there was some, some merit in doing a, softcore porn parody of a news magazine <laughs> that just just amuses me yes for you know the more refined uh connoisseurs <laughs> of pornography <laughs> i guess there was a column in the back about world events you know <laughs> in between the volleyball scores and stuff like that so i love that hawkeye starts looking at it right in front of father okay like he doesn't it doesn't give him any pause a little to kind of be like "Ooh, look at i'm looking at my porno mag like, there's a there's a priest about Two feet in front of you, man. You know, okay, but what do you, I guess? Mulcahy Mul- Mul- knows what the rules are when he comes into the swamp. That's true. Honest. That's true. Yeah, he's got right. Yeah, he's got to know what what's what you know what the deal is. So <laughs> Winchester uh, walks in and he's uh, upset that the the male is not waiting for him because he realizes his radar is busy talking, and uh, he makes a joke about uh, you know. Oh, I wouldn't even take a. I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, take a look at your allowance, which is a joke that Hawkeye makes, and I love that. When he says that, Winchester shakes it as if there's coins in it and holds it up to the light. Like you could see, like, the, like are his family actually sending him, you know, dollar bills or something? I don't know what that is. It's kind of a weird, it's like a funny little joke. It's like, yeah, they're actually still sending Winchester 50 cents or something. Uh, I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. <laughs> so Hawkeye uh, opens one of his letters and then we're getting the established plot that he is now getting mail for another benjamin pierce and he's opening them up and they'll talk about this near the end of the episode where the other benjamin pierce shows up right but 
Hawkeye gets a bunch of grief from this guy for opening his own, for opening mail that's not his, right? But I don't understand how what, how he knows that it isn't addressed to him. Exactly, it says Benjamin Pierce on it. I mean, what's he supposed to do? I mean, I don't. I was just going to say maybe the return address or you know something like that, some kind of context clues that maybe Hawkeye you know should kind of put two and two together and figure out that this person is clearly not trying to write to him. Um, but what, what, what was your theory? I, yeah. I mean, I don't, it does seem a little, I mean, they've already established that mail is such a, a treat for these people that when they get it, they tear into it because it, so I would imagine if someone handed you an envelope that had your name on it, you would just start reading. You know what I mean? You wouldn't pause to like, look at it. I mean, maybe someone sent you, maybe it's someone you don't know. Who knows? I don't know. It's like, I'm just like, it's a little rough on Hawkeye. It's got his name on it. It says Benjamin Pierce. You know, it's not like it says, I don't know, major. I don't know even if it said major, but like, maybe that's wrong. I don't know. I just think they're alternate Benjamin Pierce is a little hard on Hawkeye here. Uh, They're both, they're both captains. Even they both have the same rank. It's exactly when we meet him later. So. And it has been established in season four in the late Captain Pierce. There is yet another Benjamin Pierce out there. The one that died that everyone thought was Hawkeye. So there's, well, a, there's at least a couple of Benjamin Pierces out there. Well, not anymore. Not well, you know. <laughs> there's, there's one less now. Um, well, yeah. what, was it ever confirmed that his name was actually Benjamin Pierce, the guy who died, and that it wasn't just a case of you know, Hawkeye's file being like transposed onto. You know, I think you're right. You're right. I don't think that uh, Captain Pratt ever actually says that it's another Benjamin Pierce. I think he just says your file was swapped with another. So you're right. It doesn't necessarily. Yeah. We could believe either way. Yeah. But it doesn't. Right. But you're right, though. It doesn't necessarily mean there's another Captain Pierce. So uh, BJ's opening uh, his mail and he reads that Peg got a leaky sink and now she has a cold. And then. He gets to the part where he says uh, she went to a neighborhood party and one of our good neighbors made a pass at her. And Hawkeye says, how'd she handle it? And BJ says she thought it was funny. Ha ha. Two things. <laughs> Two things about this. Let's first of all, first of all, Peg should not have told him that. <laughs> like she should have left it out knowing how much that's going to upset her husband. Being on the other side of the world, there's nothing he can do about it. That's one. Two, what kind of a dick? It's on. I know there are men that do this. There's a term for. There was a term for in World War II. Uh, I don't know if that has gone on, but there was a, the term of World War II was Jody grind. A Jody grind is a man that hits on the spouse slash partner of someone serving overseas. So that's it was a thing. But what kind of a jerk are you to? And and on top of it. It's a neighbor. It's not even like a stranger that she happened to meet who maybe doesn't know Peg's situation. He just sees she's a, she's an attractive woman and he, it's a neighbor who knows her husband is off serving in Korea. I think we can assume that neighbor probably had a little too much to drink at that, at that neighborhood party. Um, it's, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that you don't think Peg should have told BJ about it. I think she did think it was genuinely funny. Mm. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's, 
it's interesting that we we never really get to we we have like the one letter uh from bj to peg uh in in season four and then and anytime we're hearing from peg it's like always through bj you Mm -hmm. know what i mean so it's we kind of don't have a sense of you know how how much of like what we hear from her is like maybe bj blowing things out of proportion not not that you know i i think that this didn't actually happen or anything like that but i think you know i think peg and hawkeye are the ones kind of taking the sensible view of it here you know it sounds it sounds like she handled it really well she laughed it off she thought it was funny she thought it would you know be a funny anecdote to to tell bj afterwards um which clearly bj did not you know think the same i i just can't wrap my head around that that anyone would think that was funny (laughs) i just can't i just like Especially when he's he's separated from his family again. Obviously, she didn't take it seriously. She thought just it's just like oh, just leave that part out, right? <laughs> right about something else, Peg. Come on. Uh, but of course, that frustrates BJ to no end. Hawkeye tries to talk some sort of talk him down a little, but he's not hearing it, and he storms out. Uh, Winchester starts laughing, and Hawkeye's like, "Did you think that was funny?" He says, "No, I read that there's this uh, sorghum crop that's been destroyed." Uh, somewhere, somewhere, and Hawkeye's like, so what? And he says, well, he says, uh, that's sort of a competing crop. I invest in this other type of sorghum, which means he's got quite of a windfall. And Hawkeye is, of course, disgusted. And he says something about, you know, people, a bunch of people wiped out and only can think of yourself. And he's like, they have their interests and I have mine, you know, which we, that's the, that's the mindset. <laughs> that's really the mindset of those. Those kinds of people where it's like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of people suffering, but I'm a little richer. So, eh, you know, sucks to be them, I guess. Uh, but that's uh, that's Major Winchester uh, kind of all over. <laughs> the, the rules of the free economy, right? Oh, yeah. Late stage capitalism, everybody. Uh, so uh, then we catch up with uh, with Radar and he is reading this letter. Potter is coming and he's handing these photos that... Um, his wife Mildred is taking and he's handing them off to radar and radar is only sort of half paying attention. Um, and we realize that, uh, it's cause he's distracted by this letter and Potter's like anything wrong. And he says, well, it's kind of personal. And Potter's like, all right, fine. You know, uh, leave me fine. That's okay. And then radar immediately spills the beans and he says, my mother's, my mother's dating somebody. And, you know, Potter's like, well, that's great. And, you know, she's the poor woman's been alone a long time. And he says, well, she's got my uncle Ed. And, you know, obviously that's really not what <laughs> Raider's not quite getting that exactly. Klinger shows up, asks uh, for, talks about the letter and says, you know, you know, please, I need it. I need to go home and talk to my wife. And Potter just completely dismisses him, maybe a little cruelly. Uh, but still, again, uh, you mentioned Klinger. This is, you know, this is Klinger's own trap that he set for himself is that nobody believes him. But, you know, at the same time, you realize, well, you know, all of Klinger's scams are kind of ridiculous in one way or the other. And this one's not. So maybe Potter would have given him a little bit more of a second chance, but, but no. And so he pushes Klinger out of, uh, out of the office and, uh, another, another strike for poor Klinger. Yeah, I understand, obviously, why Potter isn't going to give him a second chance. Uh, I think as a viewer watching this and watching how Jamie Farr plays this, we can see that it's not Klinger pulling a scam. Um, and that's that's all due to the way that Jamie plays it totally genuinely, right? He's saying 
maybe the same words that he would be if he were trying to pull a scam, but his inflections make all the difference. Yep. You know, he, you, you can see that like he's not playing this up. He's not exaggerating this. Like he's genuinely affected, um, by this news that he's gotten, which of, of course, Potter is, you know, just not having any of it because the, the blinders went up the minute, you know, Klinger walked <laughs> in and said, Colonel, I have to talk to you. Right. <laughs> news from home. It's like, okay, we've heard this before. <laughs> Are you a serial killer this time? Are you the king of the gypsies? <laughs> like, what's the, what's the bit? But, but yeah. And you really yeah. do feel, really it's- do feel bad for Klinger. Uh, <laughs> Is it your, your seven children that you're now, you know, <laughs> taking responsibility for? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we then join, uh, Margaret in the supply tent and she's uh, doing, doing work. Winchester comes in looking for his tortoise shell pen and he says, I want it in a debate. Should the U.S. permit more liberal immigration? And he answers, uh, I, of course, took the negative, which is. <laughs> nothing ever changes uh (laughs) and margaret i love margaret's reaction when she just kind of like rolls her eyes like oh you know like of course that's exactly first of all it's like she didn't ask didn't ask did not and and in fact we can see that while charles is talking margaret is counting to herself and trying to do work that she came into the supply room to do (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah she doesn't want to hear about this stupid tortoise shell pen that he's obsessing about so she sees upset and Winchester, you know, offers to kind of be a shoulder, you know, he says, okay. So she explains that Donald Penobscot's mother in law, her mother in law, Donald Penobscot's mother is uh, basically blackballing her out of the DAR, the daughters of the American revolution. And of course, you know, it's been a, we, this has been mentioned in previous episodes that uh, Donald Penobscot's mother doesn't like Margaret and sort of regards her as sort of a lower, uh, you know, person lower in the, the caste system, uh, and, and, and doesn't really bother to hide it. And here's another example of that. And then Winchester does not help his case by saying, well, the day R has to maintain certain standards. They can't just let anybody in. And <laughs> you would imagine Margaret is, uh, horrendously offend, uh, offended at that. Especially because Charles is the one who was trying to get her to, you know, unburden herself in the first place and then Mm -hmm. to turn around and take take the side of the mother in law in this situation. And he he gets even he gets even worse when he says people like the Penobscots and the Winchesters have to maintain the 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 integrity of the breed. Oh, yeah. Good Lord. I mean, what is he going to be pro eugenic shortly? I mean, good Lord. I mean, we know it's silly and but this is how <laughs> this is kind of how Winchester thinks and it's only because of David Ogden Styers is so talented an actor that he makes this work at all because a lot of his ideas at least for me are pretty unpalatable uh and I think if someone else said them they might be you might just hate the guy but you kind of don't like you're just like oh god Winchester you roll your eyes but you don't dislike him I think that's due to the performance of Styers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, that's one of the, the things that Burt Metcalf originally saw in, uh, in David Ogden Styers when bringing right. him onto the show was after, I'm, I'm sure you've talked about this, uh, on the podcast before his turn on the Mary Tyler Moore show yep. playing the yep. station manager, uh, and the quote, lovably unlovable, <laughs> um, sort of vibes that, that he would later bring to Charles, um, was, was super great. And he's, he's just so funny in this scene. I, I think that, David Ogden Styers, there's an argument to be made that he is possibly the most talented member of the cast with just like the most impeccable comedic timing. Um, and I, 
I could just watch him, you know, read the phone book. I'll watch him do anything. <laughs> I think I think he's great. He gets a lot of really funny stuff in this episode, considering he doesn't get a letter from home, really. That, that That's a plot line. He gets a lot of funny stuff to do. And speaking of which, the next scene is that later on at night, they're in the mess tent and they're watching a movie. They're watching a film by the Ritz Brothers, who I am familiar with, but I've actually never seen any of their films. I've gone back and seen a lot of comedians from that time, Laurel and Hardy, and I've already talked about how much I love Evan Costello and the Marx Brothers, but the, the Ritz Brothers has just fallen through the cracks over the years, and the scenes that they show don't make me want to go see a Ritz Brothers movie in particular, uh, but Winchester actually thinks it's funny, and this would be something that they would kind of uh, repeat in later episodes where Winchester, for all of his high and mightiness, loves lowbrow comedy. You know, when the USO troop visits, he finds mm-hmm. Fast Freddy very funny. And then he reveals in, in season 11 that he loves Tom and, and Jerry. Tom and Jerry, yes. So, yeah, he's got, he likes, he likes kind of dumb comedy. So, okay. And I love that, um, Hawkeye and BJ are talking and BJ's upset about the letter and they're talking and Winchester's is like, be quiet. I'm trying to watch the movie. And then <laughs> Hawkeye is like, quiet, everybody, quiet. Which Charles trying to watch. Okay, go ahead, Charles. Watch. Go ahead. Go ahead. Watch. 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 He's <laughs> just being super extra annoying to Winchester. And at one point, he even hits him in the shoulder and points at the screen. Go ahead. Watch. 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 <laughs> it's such sibling behavior. I I love the dynamic. I love that you can also see Margaret laughing at Hawkeye making fun of Winchester, <laughs> and even even BJ, like despite himself and the, despite the mood he's in, cracks a smile a little bit too. It's great. <laughs> it's, I, I I love the the family bonding moments, right? Did you have that kind of relationship with your brothers growing up? Oh, a hundred percent. What what's the point of having siblings otherwise? <laughs> uh, so so everyone again, everyone's sort of having conversations. Radars, you know, says something kind of uh, non sequitur. You know, she she's almost fifty. Really, she's out there dating, and Potter's like, "Are we watching the same?" You know, but Mulcahy says, "Are we watching the same movie?" And of course. And then the film strip breaks down because, of course, it does. Klinger, as usually, is running the film strip. And Winchester's like, you know, hey, fix it. And Winchester and Klinger finally says, you know, retread it yourself. I've had it. And he says, uh, look, I just want somebody to listen to me. And everyone really, literally everyone in the tent just goes like, uh, you know, they roll their eyes and they're, you know, wave, they're waving their hands at him. And you really again you really do feel for for poor Klinger. part of it is jamie Farr just has that face it's just this moist eyes that he's got and then uh he gets so mad that he grabs the sleeves of his dress and rips them off and he's like that's not fake this is this is this is and he tears them off and then he yells he says to colonel potter about uh my wife isn't my wife leaving me isn't phony she stole my allotment checks built up a nice bank account and now she's found another guy and storms off. And it's a great moment. It's a great moment for Jamie Farr and Klinger punctuated with Winchester saying, I will never get to see the end of this movie. And that's our act break. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Klinger has his, his interests and Winchester has his. Exactly. Which is seeing the end of this movie. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a, a great performance, uh, as, as you said, from Jamie, uh, in that moment. And, uh, just, I, is this the first? episode where Klinger has gotten to have like kind of his own plot line that is not him pulling a scam like is this this the first episode because he's had moments before 
but he got he got married and that wasn't a scam when he gets married to Laverne in season three. So that's a that I would say that counts because that's okay. not a scam. He really does get married. So but yeah, you're right. Most of his plot lines are him trying to get out, not not something related to really being back home or anything like that. Yeah. And he, I mean, he's had great moments before, like his uh, War of Nerves, I think it was, where he has yeah. that great speech about how, you know, he doesn't want to die and he doesn't want to be told to do it to other people. And that all all that wonderful, wonderful moment uh, that you covered in that episode. Um, but I, I think this might be like the first kind of serious, dramatic because his his marriage storyline, I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't really call that like a dramatic storyline. You know, oh, that's I mean? true. It's, okay, I see what you're saying. He, yeah, he yeah, had yeah. more. He had more to do for sure uh, than than in other episodes, maybe. But it's, I, I think this is kind of the first time we've gotten to see him sort of flex his dramatic acting chops, right? Yeah, 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 yeah right. Because the, the wedding is played for laughs, but this is definitely sort of deadly serious. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's true. Uh, again, uh, Amy Farr just just completely bringing it uh, this season, and so we're back, and he's talking to Colonel Potter, and he's. <laughs> talking about how great you know him and laverne were she was his lookout on fruit stand heist when he was 12 <laughs> true love uh and uh you know it does sound pretty pretty cruel that not only is she leaving him but that she's stolen all of his money i mean that is i don't i, I guess what, what are you gonna do uh i you know, I mean, they're pretty. We'll learn. We'll find out that Laverne does kind of enter back into Klinger's life in the later seasons in the show. But pretty, pretty brutal stuff. Considering how close knit it seems like the people back in Toledo are, I'm kind of amazed that she could get away with that. To be honest, like considering how many dodgy members there are of the Klinger clan, that she would risk. I mean, maybe, all maybe, of his money. maybe her family has some dodgy characters itself. We don't. Maybe there's like this whole Montague and Capulet scenario now going on in Toledo that that we never hear about that is uh that's a uh solid reference when you're talking about the Klinger clan is bringing up uh the Montagues that's very very well done Molly so uh we're uh we then uh you know Klinger says this is the worst day of my life and Potter says oh don't worry you'll have much worse days than this <laughs> just uh... Thanks. And he's, he's he's so sincere when he says it, right? Yes. Like he's really trying to encourage him, and and Klinger just does not sound encouraged at all. But <laughs> thank, thank you, you, sir. Thank you, sir. <laughs> oh man! So uh, then we're in uh, the O Club, and uh, BJ is kind of angrier and angrier about all this. Hawkeye tries to get him to sing along with him and Father Mulcahy, and uh, he's absolutely not interested in that. And he actually carts BJ out because he's again, he's just getting kind of he's BJ's a little bit of an angry drunk, at least in in this scenario. Uh, and then Klinger shows up and asks for money, tells Mulcahy, you know, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna go AWOL. And of course, Mulcahy's like, please don't do that. And he says, you know, you leave me no choice. Uh, if you're gonna go through with this, to talk to Colonel Potter. And Klinger's like, you'd squeal. And he's like, you know, only for your own good. And He's like, you know, boy, you're no soft touch. And of course, he is straight up lying to Father Mulcahy because he's always planning on doing it in the first place. He's just buying himself uh, a little bit of time. I, I just wanted to know if we could revisit um, the the BJ uh, bit for a moment. Oh, sure, he, of course. He, he's uh, said something here and also uh, in the earlier movie scene that I think is really interesting where he he has this fear that Peg is changing without him, mm -hmm. right? It's There's this emphasis on, you know, she sounds less like herself with every letter. 
and you know hawkeye's trying to tell him you know obviously when you have this time apart like it's natural that she's gonna have to become her own person bj says what if we become strangers right so it's it's this whole idea that that bj has and i think this is something they kind of come uh back to throughout the show i think this is maybe one of the first times we're sort of seeing it um that bj I think BJ and Charles are the two characters who are most determined to not be changed by this situation that they found themselves in. I, I think they both have this kind of mindset of, you know, this war is going to end and I'm going to go home and pick my life back up again. And it's going to be exactly the same mm. as when I left it. Um, I, I think for BJ, especially, uh, you know, he Peggy was eight months pregnant when he got drafted. So Aaron hadn't even been born yet. Right. Um, and then it's like she's born and he, you know, goes to Korea right away. And I, I think in this, he has this picture in his head of, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to get back home and I'm going to, you know, pick up that family man role again that I should never have left in the first place. And, you know, it's, I'm, I'm determined not to let the war, you know, ruin this life that I've, I've kind of built for myself, which obviously there, there's no way that, you know, he was going to remain unchanged and that Peg was going to remain unchanged and, they were just going to, you know, come back after however much time apart and, and things were going to be perfect. Um, so, yeah, it's I, I, I think this is definitely the first time that we get like one of these sort of BJ breakdown episodes where he kind of gets news from home and starts to spiral like this. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think we've really seen this before. Obviously, we know that we'll we'll see it in future episodes, um, some very famous ones. But yeah, it's it's I I love the BJ psychoanalysis. I think he's a really fascinating character to me because he tries to appear so normal, you know, unlike maybe someone like Hawkeye, who's, you know, very, very vocal about how, you know, this this place is changing him and he he hates it there and is, you know, just just very like on his sleeve about it in a way that BJ tends to, I think, repress it a little bit more. Um, like as Sydney called him a, a volcano <laughs> in that one episode. Right. Um, so it's, we, this is kind of the first time we start to see what happens, like when the volcano starts to bubble over a little bit. Um, so yes, it's, it's, and, and we'll, we'll get to, you know, the, the phone conversation later. So I'm, I'm sorry to derail us for a little bit right no, there. No, no, that's a fantastic, <laughs> no, no, that's a fantastic observation. Cause that's, you you totally understand why BJ would want to just say, hey, my life's going to pick up the way I left it. But that's not realistic. And that's not fair to Peg. That's not fair to your spouse because the spouse is having her own sets of experiences, you know. And uh, I mean, this it, I mean, I want we have to go too far down this road because you're we're kind of like reading stuff into it that's not really there. But I mean, this is the 50s. You know, I mean, BJ is a relatively progressive guy. Not that that term was in use in 1950s, but it's still the 1950s. And, you know, maybe he's not necessarily totally chill with his wife being as independent as she is because she has to be. She's, she's a single parent right now. So, I mean, yeah, that you, you, I never really thought of it exactly like that, but that's, that's really accurate. And again, you'll see it in later episodes and even has that comment. I think it's in the period of adjustment episode where he kind of scoffs at Hawkeye and says, well, your life will pick up where you left it off when you pick up your date book. That's, you know, he kinda, uh, Wheeler, you know, Wheelers and Dealers. Wheelers and Dealers. That's the one. D- different BJ breakdown episode. Another BJ breakdown episode. <laughs> but right. You know, you think about how he's sort of resentful of that, that Hawkeye has Ooh, a life absolutely. that he can put a pause button on, which, of course, is not accurate either. 
because yeah, maybe the maybe the life in Crab Apple Cove hasn't changed, but Hawkeye certainly has changed. He's certainly going to come back a different person. But yeah, he really is, feels sorry for himself in that regard. Again, not that that's not understandable, but it yeah, it's not totally fair to Peg to just be like, hey Peg, you stay the exact same person you were you you were when I left uh, for however many years, and then just be that person again when I come back. That's not realistic. Well, that's what BJ expects of himself, though. Mm. So ob- obviously, you know, he's going to expect the same of Peg, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess, <laughs> he's yeah, just holding I her to so. the same standard he is himself. As it, what, one more thing before we move on from this. Um, I, I'm reminded of a, a kind of another throwaway line uh, in an earlier episode from season four, uh, some 38th parallels. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, again, it's like one of these really like throwaway moments that kind of like gives you a little bit of insight into how BJ's mind works when he's washing his socks in the swamp and Hawkeye notices and he says, I've never seen you wear those before. <laughs> and BJ says, oh, I never do wear them. And then he explains further. He says, if I wear them, they'll get dirty. But if I keep <laughs> washing them, they stay clean forever. <laughs> it's like, are, are you projecting onto the socks here a little bit, BJ? I think. <laughs> Like, it's this piece of home that he has with him, right? That he's, that, you know, he's, he's refusing to wear because he doesn't want to sully it with the dirt of this place. And, you know, has, has this image of, oh, like, if I can just keep the socks clean, then. (laughs) (laughs) That is a fantastic poll, Molly. Some, some kind of, oh, I had this in my notes. I wanted to talk to you about this. Uh, I, I've, I've been very excited to, to psychoanalyze <laughs> BJ this episode with you. I, because I know that you are also a big BJ fan. Oh yeah. Um, oh, yeah. and, and it's, he's one of, one of my favorite characters to discuss endlessly. Um, <laughs> because he's, he's just really not as normal as he appears. Right. Person, I <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I, I think not everyone picks up on that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, oh that that's that is fantastic. I that, I've never really thought of any of amazing. I've watched these shows for forty five years and I've seen them a million times, but that never really dawned on me. But that's that is true. That is true. That is that is a flashpoint of anger for him. That the idea that the world is moving on without him, which again is completely understandable, but not realistic. So uh, that's that's great. That's that's marvelous. He picked up on that. So. um Hawkeye puts uh, BJ to bed. Uh, he has this great line where BJ kind of just and Hawkeye says it must be marvelous to have a second language, which is a great, great little gag. Radar shows up and wants uh, some advice and they go and they sit outside. And I love this. I I love kind of the idea that it's summer, at least in Korea, or that it's very least that it's warm. And they can kind of sit outside like they're on the porch. I, I just think that's just sort of charming. And Radar explains to Hawkeye about what's going on with his mother. And uh, he <laughs> describes um, he describes this, this guy. Well, before he gets to that, he says, you know, you know my mother. And he says, I'm only by mail. And then Radar says, well, you know, she's been without my dad for a long time now. And I love Hawkeye gets very serious. He just says, yeah, I know. He leans uh, in. He leans in. Yeah. It's terrific. So Radar talks about that her mother, his mother is dating this guy who's a bank bank. He's been a teller for the farmer's bank for 30 years. He's a third degree Mason. He's an elder in his church. And Hawkeye says, he sounds like a pretty shady character. <laughs> well, he can't, he can't help himself, right? He has to make a joke and then, you know, immediately apologizes. And uh, OK, sorry, Radar, this is serious. This is, I, I understand. <laughs> I love that the guys, the guys sort of like 
homespun middle America credentials could not be more solid. <laughs> Raiders, like, he's going, this guy's going around with my mom. He says, bingo on Wednesday night at the Masonic Lodge, uh, Friday, Friday square dancing at the Pentecostal church. Sunday, he gets her in her Nash, his Nash Metropolitan, takes her over to Lockport for snow cones. <laughs> and I love the way Gary Berghoff delivers this because he puts a kind of spin on it to make it sound sordid. When it is the least sordid thing imaginable, but just the way he, his accusatory tone is like, oh yeah, this is, this is pretty dodgy stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what you can get up to in a Nash Metropolitan. <laughs> I guess it is the insinuation that Radar is maybe making there. Yeah, I love it. He says, old people aren't supposed to go running around like that. And Hawkeye's like, wait, you know, come on, it's great. And he says, well, what if, uh, suppose he wants to horse around? And Hawkeye, of course, is not really giving her what he wants. You know, he's like, it's good for the cardiovascular system. <laughs> and he says, Radar, you know, she's a warm-blooded woman. And Radar says, well, that was my regular father. And then that's it. They realize that it's the jealousy that he's got he doesn't like the idea that much like bj you know radar's got a a loved one at home that is changing yeah and he doesn't that sounds that's deeply upsetting to him and then uh hawkeye tells him this this marvelous story about that his dad tried to date this nice woman and because he said he was very lonely and but he needed his son's uh, blessing and he wouldn't give it to him and he says he didn't marry her. And, and he says, you know, uh, he's been alone to this day and, and loneliness is everything it's cracked up to be. I, I just love this scene. I just, I could watch this all yeah. day. These, this is just so beautifully written, directed, performed. Um, and it reminds me of, you know, the other scene from the previous season where, you know, Hawkeye counsels radar about losing his virginity and not being in a hurry to do it. I just, I, I just think the scene is just beautiful. Yeah, it's great. And I, it makes me think of, um, the conversation I think Potter had with Radar, uh, back in Fallen Idol when, you know, Radar and, and Hawkeye were kind of on the rocks for a little bit. Um, and Potter, I think, had that line about how you, you know, now, now that you kind of see Hawkeye as a more of a human being, you might like him now better than you ever did before. And here we are, you know, almost at the end of the season now and Radar is suggesting that you know they they set their parents up together <laughs> it's 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 great I, I think it really you know speaks to speaks to the closeness between them um and i i know mash was not always one for continuity but is this also the first time we've heard that hawkeye's father is a widower because his mother was alive in season one <laughs> yeah um oh well okay in in the late captain pierce the they don't ever mention his mother and yet right. so i you they i'm so you can make the you know you can make the, you can extrapolate and say well you can in, infer right right I, I we think don't but that doesn't mean the, she's dead of first, course the so, first yeah. time that they actually came out and were like yeah no Haw hawkeye's mom is dead now and by the way margaret's dad is also alive now try right. to keep up <laughs> <laughs> we we introduce we introduce these parents as need be yeah Bit of them as need be. Uh, Hawkeye had a sister. No, he didn't. No, it's just him and his dad. That's it. So, and he's um, not from Vermont either. He's not from Vermont. <laughs> yeah, no, no. We um, never said that. <laughs> no, uh, it's it just it's such a it's just such a beautiful scene. You know, it mm -hmm. really is. It's just I love that Hawkeye has this story kind of at the ready. 
And and the way he again the way he delivers it when he talks about you know my father needed me to to approve and I and he says but I wouldn't and I I get the sense from that I mean we we're reading into other scenes so why not I get the sense that Hawkeye is admitting it wasn't that he wouldn't approve of this woman because she was somehow deficient he simply wasn't going to approve of her because it wasn't his mother that's it uh, and he regrets that. Because he yeah. realizes what he is subjecting his father to by his I, immaturity. Yeah, I I think it's very in character for Hawkeye to blame himself for that a little bit, which it sounds like he does. I also think it's in character of him to kind of be blaming himself unfairly because you know he's twelve years old at the time, and mm. it's it's a it's a very emotional age, and having like just lost his mother recently, um, you know, it's it's I. I don't know that I would be holding holding my twelve year old self to to the standard that maybe Hawkeye seems to be, but that's that's just who he is. You know, he he has to take the world's problems on. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's just as it is. I I love all the references, of course, to him and his dad. Like, I just think that's a great. That's just a fun, wonderful relationship that they have, and we we'll, we learn about it more in later mm-hmm. seasons, especially the one episode, the Sons and Bowlers, which is I think a masterpiece of an episode. Um, but just, oh, yeah. uh, you know, I, you, I, you kind of dropped all these images of them living in this marvelously big old house up in Crab Apple Cove. And it's just these two guys, you know, <laughs> it's just, the, and two guys that while they're father and son, they have a more equal relationship than most fathers and sons do. Mm-hmm. You know, they're more, they're more uh, contemporaries. They treat each other like that rather than, you know, uh, Mr. Pierce tr- treating Hawkeye like he's a, a kid. You know, you get to sit there kind of just two guys. Uh, at that point. And, uh, it's really, it's, it's just, it's a great moment and it's one of my favorites from this episode and, and the whole season. So, um, later on, uh, radar is asleep. BJ wakes up and he needs to call Peg. And I love initially that radar says no. <laughs> no, forget it. <laughs> he feels so comfortable. He I, can't I tell love- it to Margaret, but he can do it to BJ. No, no, no. I love that, first of all, that BJ has woken up at quarter to three in the morning after having just, you know, passed out drunk and, 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 you know, suddenly has to wake up at quarter to three in the morning with this burning desire to call Peg. Um, I also love kind of, I, this is something I actually noticed, uh, when I was rewatching to prepare for this episode, sort of for the first time, the irony that BJ has been complaining about how, oh, Peg has to do things that, she shouldn't have to do and kind of implying that like oh she flooded the kitchen she's making a mess there's like a bit with the car in a little bit that we're about to get to just kind of implying that peg is out of her depth a little bit and then here he's like okay step aside radar i'll work the phone by myself where do you plug this thing in (laughs) and it's like okay so now you're gonna wreck the phone the way that peg wrecked the kitchen (laughs) (laughs) literally everyone at the 477 should have at least a crash course on how to operate the phone just on a basic level, just in case, not to be grim, the company clerk gets killed. You know, and everyone should, the phone is pretty essential. <laughs> it really shouldn't be in the hands of like two people here at the, of Radar, Klinger, and the unseen PA announcer. We really, more people should know how to use this thing. The the unseen PA announcer only shows up when they need someone else to work the phone. That's I think right. is how it works. He's like Schrodinger's PA operator, right? <laughs> That's right. Oh, I do love the BJ's like, how, how do you plug this thing in? And Raider's like, ah, <laughs> just like, oh my God, come on. 
So uh, <laughs> I'm kind of like that at home when I can't find things around the house. You know, I'm like, Where, where's the thing? And my wife's like, uh, like, <laughs> like, what are you new here? Uh, <laughs> so uh, he he finally makes the phone call. He, he has to beg Sparky because, of course, Sparky's integral to this whole production. And then he says, there's 25 bucks in it for you. And, <laughs> and BJ's like, what? And Raider's like, I didn't think you'd mind. <laughs> and Mike Farrell plays this wonderful little face journey of acceptance in that moment. Like, okay, sure. I'm, I'm paying whatever it is in, in current day money. I think it's like $250. A lot of money. For this phone call. <laughs> this Great. phone call that you just had to make at, at quarter to three in the morning that you woke up for. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets up and he says, uh, there's a lot of static over Honolulu. It's going to take a minute. BJ gets mad and starts thrashing Radar's teddy bear to the point that it actually squeaks a little and which offends Radar. He grabs it and he says, and he pointing to his bear, his head isn't on too good either, which is, again, I love that he feels comfortable talking to BJ like that. I did, you know, this is totally not the way a military unit would operate, but I love that they have that relationship and that BJ takes it because he realizes yeah. we're equal and yeah, I'm being a bit ridiculous. It's a great visual, too, where you get Radar almost backing him into the corner. Like, you can see BJ back down a little bit mm-hmm. uh, when when Radar kind of approaches him almost almost twice his height. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. He died, he died it's just like a, a, a great little, like, physical physical bit of comedy that they do there. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, Father Mulcahy, he wakes Potter up, tells him about what happened to, what happened to Klinger, and he says, well, he, he talks about that it's three o'clock now. And Potter's like, okay, you know, uh, let's, let's try and track him down. And Mulcahy's like, I'm sorry I had to wake you up. And he says, don't worry. Uh, I have to get up and I had to get up in another six hours anyway, which clearly a joke because Colonel Potter does not get up at nine o'clock. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> so, I, I just love that it's comedic exaggeration. Like, I had to get up at six hours anyway. So, or maybe he, he sleeps in on Sundays or something. So he shows up and he comes into the office and BJ's in the middle of what sounds like a completely, you know, silly phone call to the point where Potter's like, you let him call his wife about a car. And he's like, well, you know, he is a, he says, I think he's a, he's a sir, sir. Or captain, I gets a captain. Colonel. He's a captain colonel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so uh, BJ gives some advice. He mentions that this mechanic uh, is an old friend of BJ's. They played football together in high school. I'm not buying that BJ ever played football. He's what was he, the place kicker? He is he's not built for that. This is two varsity letters. Yeah, but they didn't say football though. <laughs> they did not, no. Yeah. I mean, I track, you know, basketball, like but football, I don't just don't buy that BJ Honeycutt played football, but okay. Maybe their team was really bad. Uh so <laughs> and so I love that he's trying to get to the point of this and Potter's like, come on. And he literally at one point tries to grab the mic away from him and then bj finally says i wanted to check that you still need me and there's this pause well does she good to hear sweetheart oh she does and there i love the three of them are this sort of greek chorus uh reacting to bj's phone call i'll have such great timing uh in that moment i also love potter's expression when he hears bj like come out and say the reason that he called is because you know he's insecure and he needed to check and see if Peg still needs him and then Potter as someone who has been doing the long distance thing for the better part of 30 years now, right. is just kind of like, okay, like, are, are, like, are you kidding me with this? Like, this is what we're, we're standing here at quarter to three in the morning for BJ. Come on. It's yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a great moment. Like when 
it sounds like BJ is almost sort of admitting it to himself as he's saying it out loud there. Um, and, and this kind of, you, you get the sense that like he, we really don't know like how much of his sense of self is kind of like bound up in that idea of himself as a husband and a father. Um, I, I just think it's so interesting that like, it's when he perceives that that thing is threatened that like is what makes him lose control because obviously we know he misses Peg and Aaron. Like he, he misses them every day, but it's, it's specifically this idea that like something he might not be needed anymore is, is the thing that, you know, is, is going to kind of drive him over the edge a little bit. Um, Sort of this idea that, you know, he's, he's been away for so long that he's starting to be replaced, which, which is another recurring thing with BJ. This, this idea that like, He's he's a part that can be replaced or, you know, replace others, um, not not to, again, derail it a little bit. But there's uh, an interesting moment uh, when Hawkeye is, you know, talking about Trapper leaving and, you know, BJ Honeycutt, same size, same shape. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, that that line. So it's it's kind of like this this like recurring uh, issue that BJ has where he's, you know, feeling kind of insecure that, you know, he's he's not an individual enough or that he's not needed enough for, you know, it's it, I, again, I just, I love that this is kind of the first episode where we're starting to explore this part of BJ um, a little bit. And it's, it's just great. I think it's fascinating. I really think you've outdone Sidney Friedman because he admits that he can't get a handle on BJ. It's very, and dear it's very Sigmund, kind and you, of you. you. You've got a handle on him, Molly. I have I have many many advantages that Sydney does not. That is um, true. That is true. You've I, I had think many if, years to watch all of his episodes, and Sydney only has to visit. I him think every if so Sydney often. Friedman could sit down and watch Mash, I think I think he would understand <laughs> BJ a lot better. I I think he would be proud, though. I think he would be really admiring of your I think very trenchant analysis of BJ Honeycutt. So. Uh, and they, they, they have a great way to get out of the scene where, you know, Potter says everything all right. And BJ finally says, always was, always was like immediately, like, Oh, nothing was ever wrong with me. Like it's, I'm, I'm totally fine. (laughs) It's just like, he's, this is not normal behavior. Like you have to wonder, like, does he, is he fooling himself? Is he trying to fool other people? Is he like, I need to put him under a microscope and like get inside his brain and be like, let's like really break this down. <laughs> I get the sense that that Peg, I get the sense that Peg could hear it in him in his voice that he was cracking a little, and so oh, yeah. she she had to be like, no, don't worry, you know, like just because I can do this or that doesn't mean I don't need you and I don't want you back, you know, that kind of thing. There's no need to be threatened by this. Because I can get the SIG fixed, you know, or get the car repaired. You know, it's okay. Um, yeah, so it's and, sweet. And sorry, sorry, but speaking of Peg, uh, you, you mentioned earlier, we were talking about um, how maybe she shouldn't have ever told him this in the first place. Um, and it's like, maybe she, again, this is like me reading into it and like my own, my own kind of headcanons at this point, because That's we really don't here. know. We really don't know much about Peg as a character, right? Like we never see her except through BJ's perception of her. Um, like even when we do, when we do see her like cast on screen, like when she eventually shows up in later seasons, it's always like she's in BJ's dream or it's, you know, she's, she's like performing in this video that they made, right? Which is like all about what BJ's ideal day would be, right? So it's, it's kind of like we're always getting BJ's influence 
um, on our perception of Peg. Um, but it's, I, I almost wonder like if she was maybe trying to get a rise out of him mm. when, when she mentioned that bit about, about the neighbor at the party. Um, especially like if, if we, you know, we don't know how long BJ has been in Korea at this point and they play very fast and loose with that. Um, but it's this idea that like he's been away for so long and maybe Peg is starting to wonder like, okay, is this actually taking more of a toll on you than maybe like you are willing to reveal to me? Um, because BJ is, you know, so concerned with maintaining sort of like this, this calm exterior and, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, just, just get, the, get through, put his head down and just get through it. Um, and I, I wonder if maybe Peg is trying to, you know, encourage him to sort of step back a little bit and be like, hey, like, it's, it's, it's okay for you to like blow up at something once in a while. And if like, mm-hmm. maybe she's deliberately, you know, trying to, trying to give him something to get mad about. Again, this is like, you know, totally just like speculation on my part. But as you said, that's what we're here for. Yeah. Um, that's fantastic. So. <laughs> it's, I love it. I gotta talk about BJ all day. Believe me, when I talked to Mike Farrell, I had to really limit myself to about 90 minutes because otherwise I'm like, dude, I'm going to have this guy on for five hours. He's gonna, oh I'm going to drive him insane. So <laughs> it's, uh, I, I'm with you a hundred percent. I mean, the, the, look, the Mike Farrell interview is what is why I'm here. It's how I found out about. Oh, is, cast, oh that's right? how it so, is. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. You don't, you don't remember when, when Mashbler found out. About oh, that's the Mike right. Farrell interview that's what that and- was. That's yeah, that that blew up over there. That's like right. Six, That's right. six months after it happened for some reason. <laughs> and it was like the day after Mike Farrell's birthday, too, which actually, fun fact, this episode, Mail Call 3, uh, aired on his birthday um, in 1976 or 75 or whatever, 77, 78, whatever year we're in now, 78. There you go. I can't do math. <laughs> Wow. Um, oh my goodness. But yeah, anyway, yeah. Poll, yeah. <laughs> anyway, in in conclusion, always here for the the BJ uh analysis and that's that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to uh talk about this episode specifically with you um as I know that we're both big BJ fans and he he had some interesting developments in this episode for sure. He absolutely did. Absolutely did. Yeah, like I said I am a similar BJ obsessive and I I will tell you everybody. I've mentioned this occasionally here and there. I still do communicate with Mr. Farrell occasionally and he's always so nice and you know, humors my ridiculous emails. But the fact that I don't bother him with endless BJ theories, I think says, I think is, I, I deserve you a prize. Get a medal, yes. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Because, <laughs> because good Lord, I want to. <laughs> you know, I would be I emailing Mike don't. Farrell at quarter to three in the morning <laughs> saying, do you think Peg was trying to get a rise out of BJ when she told him that, you know, Aaron called Radar Daddy? <laughs> Did you, do you think that BJ and Peg ever had another kid or was it just the one? Like, you know, like, leave me alone. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, we, I, we love I, you, I, Mike Farrell. We do. We completely do. I show a lot of restraint. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> so we cut to, um, after they, they make a phone call, uh, we cut to the next morning and we get the other Captain Pierce arriving to pick up his mail. He is played by actor Oliver Clark, who of course appeared in the season five episode 38 across playing Hawkeye's old friend Toby. Uh, so of course, yeah, they occasionally would reuse actors and, um, Oliver Clark explains, you know, who he is. And there's this whole bit where, you know, he says, no, I'm no Romeo. I wish they'd leave me alone. And they're, they're kind of like, 
I don't, you know, this guy, and with the, you know, it's established that he doesn't seem to have much of a sense of humor. They make a joke and he's like, what? You know, like, and they're like, joke. And Beach is like, little, little joke. And he's like, ah, oh, okay, okay. And then, you know, as he's starting to leave, they say, you know, how do you, how do you do this? You know what I mean? Like, how do you, and they, they, they're gentle where they say, you know, no offense, but, uh, you know, you don't sound like Ronald Coleman and you don't look like, I forget the example that they use, but they have all these, you know, modern Clark Gable. Clark Gable, of course. Yeah. Very, you know, that time contemporary, uh, idea of, of, uh, you know, handsomeness and stuff. And he says, Oh, I'm very funny. I make them laugh. I'm, it's my sense of humor. I'm a very funny guy. I believe him. <laughs> so, okay. Well, let me ask you, do you think he's putting them on? I mean, isn't that the, wouldn't that be the funnier joke if he is? Yes. Right. Yes. In a roundabout way. This is a great example of a scene that I think is funnier without the laugh track by far. Oh, I don't, I don't, yes. Yes. I don't think I've ever watched this scene with the laugh track. Um, I just, I think it's so much funnier, like, when all you get is, like, what the characters are getting, right? Mm-hmm. And on all they get is, like, what their audience is giving them, which this guy is not giving Hawkeye anything. And, like, BJ is the only one laughing at Hawkeye's jokes in this scene, <laughs> which is, like, way funnier, I think, than, you know, having, having like, the unseen Greek chorus, um, you know, c- coming coming in and laughing over it. It's, like, when you can just, like, let it sit and just kind of take it at face value and experience it as the characters are experiencing it, um, I I think is is the funnier way to go, for sure. I also want to say, I think David Ogden Styers has my favorite line of his in this scene, which is just one word, and it's when the guy first comes in and addresses Charles as Captain Pierce, and he just, <laughs> that. <laughs> <laughs> Just the the way I like I said I I th- I think that man is so brilliantly talented in the way that he can deliver you know one word and make it the funniest line of the scene. It's my my hat and my hair are off to him. <laughs> He's so deeply offended at the idea someone would think he is a Pierce and be a captain on top of it. Like it's a double whammy. Like what are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, without the laugh track, that awkwardness hangs there. You know when he's like I I, I make them laugh. I'm very funny. You know, <laughs> it's just dead silence. You're like, uh, okay. <laughs> All right. That's, that's fine. Uh, so, and I love, uh, Hawkeye's, you know, button on. He's like, well, he's a very funny guy. Like he kind of underscores, like, you believe this guy? Right. Um, so <laughs> Klinger returns and, um, uh, radar is very happy. He says he, he kind of does like, he sort of says to himself family because he's happy that Colonel Potter is, you know, the Klinger's back. And then they go into Klinger's tent. And I don't know, maybe I'm again overthinking this, but that's what we're here for. Klinger's tent is a mess. Like it's a, there's crap everywhere. Like it's noticeably disheveled. And I wondered, is that, was that like a set deck choice of like that they were suggesting mm-hmm. that he was rummaging through his stuff because he had to get the hell out of there really fast and he just didn't have, you know, and he just comes like, ah, knocking things over to grab his important stuff. Because it's just, it, there's, we've seen Klinger's tent, tent before. And it looks like every other tent, except for the the sewing equipment. But here, there's just a lot of crap, and I just wonder if they're trying to suggest the frenetic, you know, departure. Yeah, it's interesting. I I can honestly say that is one aspect that I haven't given too much thought. I'm too busy uh, psychoanalyzing BJ uh, to <laughs> notice what what Klinger's tent 
It's like, <laughs> um, no, but I, I, I would believe it if that was a choice on, on the set deck. Sure. We can, we can choose to believe that it, it makes the episode better. I think. Absolutely. Um, so Klinger talks about that, you know, he's had a change of heart and he's like, look, you know, she doesn't want Laverne. If I don't, Laverne doesn't want me. I don't want her, you know, serves her right. He's like, let her go off with Morty and the the king of sausages, you know? (laughs) And so, you know, he's kind of like, he's had a change of heart and he says, and he realizes he says, you know, this hitch is bad enough. I don't want to spend the next one in jail. Um, and you know, he just, he's done all this work on his own. He came to all this conclusion and Potter's just, sitting there and taking it all in. And then he said, of course, when I get out of here, I'll be with the honorable way with a section eight. <laughs> That's it, son. Always go with your best pitch. <laughs> yeah. He's such a great commander. That's so wonderful. Yeah. I, you do kind of get the sense that they sort of just had to put a bow on kind of the end of Klinger's storyline. And it's like, okay, so we did all this work off screen and, you know, now has come back to, you know, give it, give us like the, the summary of, you know, what, what he's been doing. Um, and just, just kind of wrap it up there. But yeah, it is, it is great that, you know, he got to, to have that moment to work through it. Yeah, I love. And then Potter says, "I'll buy you a drink." And then Klinger says, "You know, I'd like a banana daiquiri," which is just <laughs> like okay, because he got one of those when he was uh, almost in Tokyo or whatever. I was uh, hoping you would know if that was like a period reference or something, because I tried to, I, I did try to look up as many of the references from this episode uh, as I could, but I, I was not sure if banana daiquiri was if there was like a reason Potter laughed at that or I, I didn't. Is, is it just I, because it's a gross drink? I think, yeah, I think it was just, it's like Klinger's just kind of like, that's how much he's back that he wants this sort of really, uh, fancy, not fancy, but like involved drink. Like he's, he's indulging himself. It's kind of like a kid, like, you know what? I want a milkshake, you know, that kind of thing. Like he's like Klinger's really back that he wants. He's not just going to have a beer. He's going to get a banana daiquiri, which, banana daiquiri, you know, which I think they even established right. in an earlier episode that they can't make banana daiquiris. Because um, Henry orders one, and Mr. Kwong is like, we don't have any bananas or cream or just powdered milk. <laughs> you can't, can't even get a banana daiquiri anyway. Um, and that's the um, that's the main act break. That's the end of Act 2. Uh, and then we come back just for a little button scene of our cast, Sans Margaret, which yes. bothers me. Margaret should be here. Why not? She could drink with them she's, all. She's missing from the entire second half of the episode. Mm-hmm. We don't see her again after after movie night. Which, you know, it's, I, I do wish she had been in more, but I'm, I'm not too disappointed because the episode before this was a great Margaret episode and the episode coming up after this one, uh, is as well. So it's, I, I can understand that maybe Loretta Swit had a, had a little break in between. But yeah, yeah I, I do, I do definitely wish that she had been in the scene at the end. Charles is there. Yeah. Like, even he's there. Right. Yeah. But they're, they're hanging out with Charles and not with Margaret. Like, come on now. Yeah, uh, I love it when Chester says, my hat is off to you. And of course, Hawkeye goes, not to mention his hair. And that gets a big laugh. And Winchester does a little. <laughs> and there's this great little bit where Mulcahy kind of like smacks. Congratulates his... Hawkeye. Yeah, on, he on does like a little brush on his arm. like, And then when he does it, Hawkeye. And then Hawkeye, he points to Hawkeye. Yeah. And Hawkeye looks back at him. And they both kind of this little silent little, yeah, you really got him on that one. It's such a great little moment. <laughs> It's just the the family vibes in this episode are just off the charts. I think they're they're just all it's just so much fun to just see them interacting with each other, right? Like even even if it's little moments like that that you know were not scripted and probably just what 
Alan Alda and Bill Christopher decided to do on the day. Yeah, I, I think it really just speaks to like how much in these characters they are at this point, six seasons in. Um, and it's we love to see it. We love to see it. We do. Yeah, it's so sweet. I never noticed it until like the whatever the however many times I've watched this, you know, the, the 4,000th time in the preparation for this record. But I noticed that where he just does that little gesture. And that feels that feels like you said, that feels like Bill Christopher now and all and not necessarily Hawkeye and Mulcahy. Uh, it's a great bit. And so Klinger finally says, you know, you know what? I love you guys. And he takes a I love you. Just the mash 407. Seven. 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 <laughs> seven. Hawkeye, Hawkeye confirmed. Yes. Seven. Seven, seven. Uh, and then he says, I love you guys. He does a toast and does a backfall, you know, onto the floor, ending with the great Colonel Potter saying a pretty rotten way to show it in one of his best drunken, Harry Morgan's best drunken voices. And that's the end of our episode. It's a to- I think this one's a total winner. Absolutely. A hundred percent total winner. I, I think everyone is playing a great drunk, uh, in that button scene. Gary Berghoff has this little moment where he's, you know, waking up almost and goes to raise his bottle for the toast and his beer bottle is upside down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's def- definitely start to finish. Um, on- only complaint is it needed more Margaret, but I'll, I'll allow it <laughs> con- yeah. considering that, you know, we we just had a great Margaret episode um, and are about to get another one. It's a shame that that little plot line doesn't get resolved, that the mother is blackballing her. Like, we never hear about it again. Like, well, it, it, gets, it, it gets resolved in a few episodes. She's going to get a divorce. Well, that's true. That's true. It, it is <laughs> the mother-in-law is not yeah. going to be a problem anymore. That, oh, is, true. that I, is true. I meant to ask you, was that scene the one that would get cut in syndication, the Charles and Margaret scene? Oh, uh, yeah. I never saw that until the DVD. I was trying to guess when I was going through. I was like, <laughs> I wonder which ones of these Rob never saw on TV <laughs> until he got the DVDs. I've it, talked about that crazy. way too much, apparently. <laughs> no, I love it. It's it's crazy to me that sometimes the choices that these these editors would make um i to bring it back to movie tonight which like i said is one of my favorite episodes and i know when you did the episode for that one you mentioned they cut the button scene yeah in syndication which is like the entire thing that brings it full circle yep Yep. right that's like the whole point of the episode that like it starts with them all being like grumpy and sniping at each other and then like ends with that beautiful scene of them in the or and they're just all like quietly singing you know just as as they work and like how how do you lose the entire point of the episode so badly that you decide, oh, yeah, this is like what they don't need to see? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, that, that one's especially brutal. Yeah, that was a, that was an especially brutal. Cut. But you think about it by cutting it. That means Margaret is even in this episode. Like what? About a minute? Yeah. You know? Like that's she, it. She gets mm-hmm. one line at the movie. And, yeah. and the line doesn't make sense without that scene because she says, who needs the D.A.R.? That's right. Yeah, that, that's funny. I wondered what I thought when I watched it in syndicate. I was like, "I'm all right. I don't know what that means." <laughs> you know, okay. I knew what the DAR was. But I was like, "All right, okay." Did you I also was... did you also like Radar's line at the movie about how old people shouldn't get married? She's almost fifty. <laughs> As someone who recently got married, yourself. <laughs> you know that Is joke that an... was that joke was funny when I was younger, <laughs> and now so now, now you see it a little differently. <laughs> Hey, screw you, Radar. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, I mean, of course, he has that similar line when, uh, which, with the one where he, uh, oh, they think he stole the gun and he goes, uh, God, I'll be in jail for seven years. I'll be almost 30. That, I'll, I'll be almost I'll be dead. Th- almost dead. <laughs> so hey, as, not funny. As, 
as someone who's in my in my early 30s i i find that i think probably about as funny as you find the <laughs> yeah 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 man the, you know what, radar i i hope she dopey does take her brother out from national metropolitan so uh, it's also so funny because gary Berghoff is like what almost 40 by this point <laughs> yeah the hairline is making a hasty retreat to the back of his head as we'll see in, in the other episodes uh but no i i love this one i just think it's it's sweet it's funny it's got some great character stuff it get everyone gets involved to some degree or the other. And I would have been perfectly fine if they had just kept doing this every season. Maybe they didn't want to feel like they were repeating themselves, but it wouldn't have bothered me if every season they just said, you know what? One, one episode we're, we're doing 24 of these things. One a season. We're going to do mail call. That's what we're going to do. Mail call. I would have been happy with mail call seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, you know, all the way through, but they chose to kind of vary it a little, but I just think this episode, um, like I said, is a total, total winner. I, I think they could have done a movie night episode uh, every season. So I'm 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 in total agreement with you there. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Well, OK, as we're wrapping up here, do you have a favorite line or joke from the episode? So many of the funniest bits in this episode were from Radar. I think Gary Berghoff just like absolutely crushed it with the comedic delivery every time he's on screen and like radar is never trying to be funny again this is an- another thing watching it without the laugh track it's like no one is laughing at radar's jokes because they're not jokes right like he's he's being serious um so it's i i think probably my my very favorite the one that at least made me laugh the hardest on this last rewatch that i did um was when he takes the teddy bear from bj and says his head isn't on too good either <laughs> um i yeah like like you mentioned the the idea that he's like so fed up with like bj at that point that even though like bj is his his superior officer it's like yeah like i'm i'm gonna yell at you here and like tell you that your head isn't on straight because you know you deserve it (laughs) he does right he absolutely does uh it's it's great that radar has that ability to do that you know he, he couldn't get away with it with margaret certainly not winchester but with bj and even hawkeye he can yeah. he can stand up for but, himself. But um, Hawkeye Hawkeye will be the first one to tell you that his head isn't on too good. That's true. Like that him, true. himself. BJ needs radar to tell it to him. And you know, we know as we've established in previous episodes this season, in other ones, radar will defend animals, even fake ones, uh, till his dying breath. You know, when when mm-hmm. when an animal is being mistreated in any way, he will drop the whole I'm a corporal thing and it is just man to man. Which I love. Mm-hmm. That's something I relate very, very strongly to, to, to radar about. So, uh, yeah, that is a great gag. Mine is, I kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, which is when Hawkeye and radar are talking out on the compound. And, you know, he says, what's wrong with your mother fooling around? It's good for the cardiovascular system. And he's like, this is my mom you're talking about. And then radar says, radar, she's a woman, a warm blooded human being. Where do you think you came from? The monkey ward catalog, which. Absolutely cracks me up that I just love the idea that Radar you thinks he was like ordered from his, from his mother like the story. Now I do want to ask you: Does that joke make any sense to you as to what it means? Into, I could tell the context. But... I could tell from the context like what Hawkeye was talking about. Like, oh, Radar, you think you were ordered out of a catalog? It's it's like a great Calvin and Hobbes bit where Calvin's dad tells him that he was a blue light special at Kmart. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> 
But I mean, okay, but the monkey. I did. Ward, I did not know what I had. I had to look up what monkey ward was. That was one of the things I I googled when I was preparing for this episode. Gotcha. And it's it's short for Montgomery Ward. Montgomery is, Ward, exactly. That's what they would call like, it. The monkey like ward, Sears, kind of. <laughs> yes, yes. The Montgomery Ward catalog was still a thing when I was a kid in the seventies, but it was on its way out. Their their heyday. But I grew up in the era of Christmas catalogs for for department stores that had toy mm-hmm. sections, and I used to pour through them like they were comic books you know what i mean so but i just love the idea where do you come from the monkey where do you think you came from the monkey ward catalog i just on <laughs> all the delivery of that is just um just priceless so yeah um, and and then the response that was my regular father was also up there for one of my favorite lines of the episode <laughs> yeah that that's okay to do but anyone else it's completely unacceptable. yeah real quick while before we wrap up and while sure. we're talking about uh period references uh, i just wanted to mention my favorite thing uh that i learned from this episode when uh uh hawkeye says we need another ink spot um, right. when he's talking about, uh, you know, singing the, the song with Mulcahy. Yeah. yeah. Harmonizing with Mulcahy. So I looked up who the ink spots were. Right. Um, and did, did you know who they were prior yes, to, I'm familiar with prior the to match? Yeah. Okay. So, so I did not know this, but there were a, a musical quartet from like the 1930s and 40s. Um, I'm, I'm not very good with genres of music, but I guess like they would be considered doo wop or like that kind of like popular music of the time. Um, and I found out when I looked this up that they have two songs in Better Call Saul. They have uh, a song, um, oh, what is it? Address Unknown that's used uh, in the in the very first episode of that show. And then uh, one in the season four premiere, My Echo, My Shadow and Me. Um, so I, I just think that's so funny that this period piece mash you know from period piece about the 50s made in the 70s referencing this musical group like who were already kind of old in the fifties, I guess. Yeah. And their music is like still being used in current television today. Um, was, was very cool to me. So. Yeah. Yeah. On my, uh, I've said in other episodes, my eternal quest to kind of blend all my shows together. The, the, I think my introduction to the ink spots was actually, uh, ironically enough through my Bob Dylan fandom because he covered one of their songs once they have a song called we three, and I had a bootleg where he sang that. And I remembered reading that it was a cover of the ink spots. And I was like, we're the ink spots. And I looked them up and I was like, Oh, wow. And it was remarked upon because it was like, here's Mr. Hip mod guy covering something from 70 years in the past. Uh, but, uh, we know that he likes that kind of music too, but that, that was sort of my introduction. So I, I, I may not have known who the ink spots were when this episode, when I saw it first and I just, you know, from the context, it must be a, a group. I didn't know about it. And then later on, I would learn. But yes, uh, you learn a lot of stuff on these MASH episodes. <laughs> I, I thought maybe Ink Spot was slang for a baritone. I didn't know that that they were a group. Um, yeah, but yeah. yeah, it's it's the the different like pop culture threads that we can kind of take. Like you're coming at it from Bob Dylan. I'm coming at it from Better Call Saul. But it's like there, there's just like this common thread that, you know, is is running through um, the the culture there that like you never know where you're going to pick it up. Which I I think is like kind of what Mash is like too. Oh, the annotated Mash would be a hell of a book, you know, just all the references to every episode with footnotes. It would just be yeah, a, be yeah. a dictionary sized uh, sized volume. So sometimes to things that did not even exist in the fifties at the time. That's but, right. That's right. Yeah, but uh, we'll we'll forgive them for again playing fast and loose with continuity and Spider-Man. chronological <laughs> order. Raider as a Spider Man comic. 
at, so, at some point we have to talk about the theory that they're all uh, stuck in a time loop, but I don't think we have uh, we have time for that today. <laughs> when you come back, Molly. Uh, well, I, again, Molly, thank you so much for uh, you know wanting to sign up for season six. It was uh, absolutely fantastic to get to talk to you. I love talking to new slash younger Mash fans. At this point, everyone's younger, a younger Mash fan than me. Uh, but uh, this was a absolutely wonderful conversation. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I think we might have not been uh, rolling when I said this, but we just really appreciate that, you know, you are taking kind of your own time out and doing this as a hobby and just a passion project and all the time and energy that you put into it. Um, for us to enjoy and and we do enjoy hearing it and love listening to it and i was you know very happy to be a small part of it for this episode i only have 111 more to go so <laughs> so why don't you tell people uh where they can find you out of the internet uh i'm less and less on social media these days which is probably a good thing overall yeah, um the the one thing I do have that I will promo uh, is a kind of little side project um, that I do non-consistently, but uh, it's a blog on Tumblr where I look at the intersection between two of my favorite TV shows, which are Black Sails and The Wire. Uh, if you know either of those shows, you might not think they would have a lot in common kind of at first glance, but there is a lot to unpack there, trust me. And so that is uh, The Wire, but with pirates uh, is the URL on tumblr if anyone is interested in either of those things come on by interesting i've seen one of those shows is it the wire it is the wire (laughs) all right so you you gotta watch you you gotta watch black sales next okay my wife has it i know there's she has it yeah she bought the box set it's on our shelf we just never gotten around to watching it so oh my goodness when when you get around to it i will say it, at the time when Black Sails premiered in 2014, kind of Game of Thrones was the biggest thing on TV at the time, and Breaking Bad had just ended, and I think the first season kind of leans into those audience expectations um, and sort of sets you up to be like, oh, this is going to be sort of Game of Thrones storytelling conventions, and the protagonist is kind of like that anti-hero type that Walter White was, um, and it I, purposely sets you up to expect these things, and then two seasons in completely flips it on you in a really satisfying way so not to give anything away but it is one of one of the greatest um storytelling experiences uh that that i've had so i'm excited for when you finally get around to that one okay all right well again there's a lot of overlap between mash and black sales fans on tumblr as well (laughs) it's amazing well again molly thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it thank you rob all right. So, of course, everybody, you can find all the back episodes of the show on our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can find the show on Twitter at MASH477Cast. You can subscribe to the show in any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, please go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So a big salute to Daniel Ulrich, Nicholas Prom, Russell Burbage, Stan Peel, Mike Thomas, Joe Perino, Billy Shulman, Dennis Bailey, Kara Kay, Tim English, Adam Ackerman, Lisa P, Laura Braun, Seven Van Skyke, Michael Kelly, Dow Clark, and Brady Palmer for their support of MASHCAST. I deeply, deeply appreciate it. That list is long, and I love it. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back in two weeks, but until then, that is all. Greatest love letters I've ever read. Here's another. There are two of you, Pierce. God help us all. Is it from Gloria or Joyce? Susan. Another one? This guy probably joined the war to get some sleep.